Gigantic Sky Media. 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 Live from Firehouse World in San Diego, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thanks for joining me again for day two of our live coverage of Firehouse World here in San Diego. It's another full day of learning for thousands of members of the fire service. With me, as always, is my co-host, Rhonda Orr, host of the Rhonda Orr Show. She's also my wife, so I'm doubly blessed. Good evening, Rhonda. Thank you, and good evening, Scott and everyone. It was another day of being privileged to sit in on several great talks today and meet some amazing, amazing speakers. One of the talks was PTSD, and actually the speaker, David Griffin, a captain at the Charleston, South Carolina Fire Department, doesn't really use the D in PTSD. He simply calls it post-traumatic stress. It's a troubling issue among firefighters, and it's just now being taken seriously. He is going to talk about moving from PTSD or PTS to PTG or post-traumatic growth. That's where a person becomes stronger and creates a more meaningful, purposeful life in the wake of tragedy or trauma. And when I was on the first do engine that day, I thought I knew my job. I thought I had trained myself effectively. I thought I had done the things on my off days to prepare myself for an event like that. But I realized I did not because I was lazy, because I didn't go out and train hard enough, because I didn't go take the classes I needed to take. And that was disappointing to me. You see, after the event, I had to read these reports on June 18th and nine good people losing their life. And I realized when I was standing at the pump panel that day trying to give them water, I didn't know my job. And that's when the stress really hit me. You see, for about a year after the event, I really didn't think I did anything wrong. I didn't think I made any mistakes, but that was my lack of education. When I had more education in this profession, started running more calls, I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing that day because of pure laziness. And that's something that I really struggled with. So I'm going to give you a picture. That's June 18th, 2007, Sofa Superstore. That's me at the pump panel on June 18th. And that was my first fire I had ever pumped. I had been on the job for about two years and two months. I had never driven to a fire. Yes, I had been to multiple fires as a firefighter, but as a backseat firefighter, I just followed my captain, and obviously that was very easy for me. As a driver, I had to now pump this event. And on that day, I saw a lot of things that I will never be able to forget, and I did a lot of things that I will never understand why I did those. But I'm going to tell you why, because that's the way I had always done it. That's the way I trained myself improperly. Nine good people died inside that building on June 18th. Six of those nine guys were on hose lines that I was trying to pump improperly because I couldn't even put the truck in pump. I had no idea how to put that truck in pump because I didn't train myself effectively. My captain had to come outside and put the truck in pump so I could do my job. So when I started to realize all of this about a year after the event, that's when all the stress really hit in. Sounds like he took this very hard. He did, and in fact, he was talking about some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and one of them happens to be guilt. 
whether you deserve it or you don't. It wasn't about shame and blame. It was simply using the symptoms of PTSD to turn around his life. So some of them that he listed were restlessness, uh, guilt, as he was expressing, and re-experiencing or seeing or feeling or smelling even a certain event. It was also about hyperarousal, like irritability and the triggers that go along with that. It was avoidance. That's another one of the symptoms he talked about. Falling into drugs or substance abuse. And the guilt of not being happy or even feeling like you deserve to be happy, especially when nine others lost their life. So, I, Scott, I was just amazed that when I started listening to him, the five stages of grieving went through my mind. And I know that's when you start a turning point. You know, denial, he was in denial for about a year, he mentioned. He went through anger, he went through bargaining, and depression, which is now also always associated with anxiety. And then, of course, acceptance of his guilt and turning that guilt into something really far-reaching to help everyone involved in the fire service, if not more. So let's hear what he had to say about his symptoms afterwards. I was a very angry person. I was angry at my wife. I was angry at my friends. I was really angry at the people I worked with. I was yelling at people on EMS calls. I was yelling at people on fire calls. I just couldn't control my anger. So as I'm taking multiple drugs and chemical to be a very huge person, I was about 260 pounds, I was angry. My buddy came to me and said, hey, man, I got something you can try. So he turned me on to mixed martial arts fighting. That's me on the right side of the screen, slightly larger, more psychotic looking. I did this because it made me feel better. But when I was going through that time in my life, I really didn't know what I was feeling. You see, when you go through something of PTSD, you feel things that you don't understand why you're feeling that, physically or emotionally. Emotionally, I didn't know what was going on. Now put on top of that chemicals, bad behavior, also alcohol. Mix all those together, and it doesn't make a very, very good person. I was married at the time. My wife was trying to help me get through all of this. Think about what she was going through. You see, a lot of times during an event or after a traumatic event, we forget about them. You forget about your wife, your husband, your kids. You think it's all about you. It's not all about you. It's about them as well. I was a coward. I yelled at my wife. I did things about not, not with my wife I should have never done. And that's disappointing to me. But when you go through something like this, you really don't know where to go for help. And that's why I do this class, because I'm going to try to give you the resources you need to get the help that you will need. You know, Scott, when David showed us the picture of when he was involved for a year as a mixed martial arts leader, it was incredible. I would never have recognized him. But he did talk about triggers, uh, some of them being, you know, nightmares, uh, insomnia. He also went on, of course, to reactivity being startled about a noise or something that really um, agitated him as he was going through that year of discovery of what his symptoms were. And he was literally punching them out of himself, the fear, the anxiety, the mistrust. And a lot of people go through the opposite. They lose interest or pleasure in any type of activities, and they develop a great sense of loneliness and not belonging. 
He sounds like he had a lot of the same kind of symptoms that we hear about from combat veterans. Of course, and you know, it's wonderful that in every avenue of modern-day life, we are addressing post-traumatic stress I. There's P-T-S-I, which is post-traumatic stress injury. It's an injury. And if you think of it, as someone said in that class, as an injury, then you know it's something that you can change. You can help to start healing. So I was excited to listen to him continue. My first step, I had to process the incident. Processing the incident is very, very important. You're going to see a lot of research out there on post-traumatic stress where people suffering with it, they can't process it at first. Why? Because they're, they're blocked. They have an imbalance going on in their mind. So for me, processing the incident was reading the reports. You obviously know after a line of duty death, a lot of reports were done. So after I processed the incident, I had to develop a plan. So developing the plan was a difficult process because I really didn't know where to go. The next, talk with a professional. So yes, I went to a professional, as I said, I talked with her. She gave me some very good information. She helped me out get over the hump that I was having around that year of 2010. About 2012, I stopped going and I was able to articulate this information much better to other people. I was able to teach about that event. I was able to talk about that event openly with other people. And that was important to me because before I never wanted to talk about it. Now, does he at this point feel that he is healed or cured or does this go on for the rest of his life? Well, I don't think it's as much as a cure because I'm not sure that anyone can be completely cured. He equated it to uh, a brain injury, a traumatic brain injury. So you're not really cured, but you know how to manage it, as our associate producer, Chad Carr, mentioned uh, today when he was in the class with me. So you guys seem like you've learned quite a bit about PTSD or PTI from this particular discussion. We did. Uh, PTSI um, is something that I would feel very comfortable calling it. And I was so impressed. The whole object of what I garnished from this class was the ability to recognize it and ask for help. Once again, you can't do anything about it unless you ask for help and from a professional and from others. Another class was devoted to avoiding fire ground trouble. It was titled... That doesn't seem right. And I love that title. It's it's almost like a game show. Captain Tom Cox from Las Vegas Fire Rescue examined incidents where things went wrong. Oh, you mean kind of like our broadcast. Yeah, perfect example. All right, let's hear what he had to say. There was uh, no true 360 recon completed uh, until later in the incident after we went defensive. So um, we had a high return wall on the Delta side uh, that came uh, all the way into the house. And Rescue 103 was, I think you guys heard, was initially, uh, they were assigned IRIT, given 360 secure utilities, report on conditions. Um, they actually, despite not having a, given a full 360 or completing a full 360, they actually gave a pretty decent report 
um, on the conditions. You heard him say we have heavy. It looks looks like we have heavy fire on the Charlie side, um, but due to smoke conditions, it was difficult for him to tell exactly where the fire was coming. Now, had command known that the fire was blowing out a window on the Charlie side, um, then they may have created a um, a Charlie division. So, unknown fire location. We knew that we had a fire working in the attic. What we didn't know was that we had a room and contents fire that had blown out the back window. And that was the engine that was really driving this fire, right? I mean, we, do, we did have fire in the attic, but if we would have checked that fire on the Charlie side, if we could have got a line around the Charlie side and knocked that down, um, then uh, we would have, uh, that may have, we may have had a better outcome on this incident. Now, that's all interesting all by itself. But when you tie it to another presentation, it becomes something that could have been a horrible mistake in a horrible situation. Don Abbott, the man behind Project Mayday, gave an update today, and he explained why training is not, not realistic enough for Mayday situations. When do most structural fires occur? At night. When do most May Days occur? At night. When do you train for May Days? During the day. That's why we're getting in trouble. you got to do your training at night for May Days. It's got to be under the worst of situations. We do it during the day. We do it on slick floors. We don't add sound effects. We don't put a lot of debris in the way. <laughs> What to, if you got a victim that you're using that's a, a real person, or you got a mannequin, gear them up, then wet them down with a lot of water, add a lot of body weight. That's the realism of the May Day. We're not there. We're not even close in some cases. We've got to be more realistic with our training. Most 75% of May Days occur between 9 at night and 6 in the morning. That's for current departments. Here's where the volunteers dramatically differ. When do you think most volunteer fire departments have May Days? During the day, why? Don't have, don't have the staffing. So there's a dramatic difference between the two there. Otherwise, it looks pretty much the same. So Project May Day is Don's effort to collect data about May Day calls and then collate and analyze all that data and discover the similarities to look for future problems before they happen. We need to be doing 360s whenever possible, and we're not. Now, there's times you can't. You can't do it maybe on a Home Depot right off the bat, but you need somebody, second, third, fourth engine, to tell you what the backside looks like. <coughs> We need to get a good 360, because when we don't, bad things usually happen. We're pretty good at most of this other stuff, but the reality is we're not very good at 360s. 61% of the time, we do not know what all four sides look like. Here's why when we do do 360s, 23% of the time, these are the results we get. We confirm the size of the structure. You're on the front side. It looks like a one-story. You walk around to the back side, and on the Charlie side, there's a sliding glass door. That's a walkout. It gives you, showing you there's a basement now, where you didn't realize that at the beginning. So you need to confirm size. Are there life safety issues? 
Are there hazards? We need to do these kinds of things. They're basic stuff, but we're missing. Here's another big thing. And I preach this a lot because I think this is one of the areas we're getting in trouble. When you listen to most of these May Day tapes, here's what you hear a lot of. Engine 5 to command, we've got uh, heavy smoke and moderate heat conditions. Ladder 4 to command, we've got light smoke, no heat. What the hell does some of that mean? We've got to be more descriptive on the radio. Engine 5 to command. I've got black smoke under pressure to my waist. I've shot a ticket to ceiling and it's more than 500 degrees. That's what that report should sound like. Because if I'm the IC outside, I've got a much better idea of what it's really like inside compared to heavy, moderate, because nobody has a good definition for those things. So be more descriptive in both the fire and the smoke. And those were the sort of things that he said lead to a mayday situation. I love that because defining a situation and a problem is the only way you can make something accurate happen to correct it. That's true. Later this morning, I was listening to Todd Harms, the fire chief at Sacramento, California's Metropolitan Fire District, He was doing a seminar essentially on the initial arriving officer, but I caught something interesting, and that's in the size-up. When you do a size-up, you have to have some basic knowledge of building construction, and his take on this was that there are certain young firefighters who probably don't. You, you mentioned some things about below construction, and I looked around the room and a lot of people shake their head. If you look at the generation of folks that we're hiring today, what's their what's their history before they get hired with us? Millennials. No, this is, this is this is always a great question. What is it? Millennials. But what does that mean? Bachelor's degree. So, you got a bachelor's degree. Not that education is not bad. I got my bachelor's degree. Bachelor's degree. Mineral science, right? Life experience. Pardon me. Life experience. Oh, they got some life experience. But what is it? What is it? it? Mom's basement. Mom's basement. This is good. Yeah, Snapchat. <laughs> Staying at home. Still living at home. Does it even work construction? No. Oh, come on. Someone had to work construction. We're still building. We still got stuff going up. What is their, what is their primary job nowadays? Finding a job. You just come in trouble. Yeah, no, give him some problem. You just don't know. No, no, I'm exactly no. IT, where does it work at? You watch your phone program, who do you go to? Yeah, you go to the new guy on that there. And most of them work sometime when they work, they work somewhere where it was service delivery. How many people growing up did dad have a lawn business to his lawn? Just a couple people did. Most of the time who had to do their lawn? Yeah, the kids had to get out there and do that. But that is the generation that we're hiring. So you said balloon construction. When you said balloon construction, what went through your mind real quick? Added fire. What worked at the start of that? Basement. Fired in the basement. So if you deploy on that balloon construction, you probably say, hey, I got smoke showing from the top. I'm going to go to the basement first, second, and I'm going to go to the roof because I'm not real sure where it stopped. It wouldn't have been traveled up and through there. If we say balloon construction, are they smart? Yes. 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 
I'll disagree with you. I think you're probably smarter than the, than the rest of us as we came into to that, in this job or this career. Do they know much about building construction, though? No. If they don't, what do we have to do? We have to teach them. And I think therein lies the catch. They are smarter than you might want to give them credit for, but they still need to be taught subjects they don't know. Well, I agree. And I think that uh, sometimes they're getting a bad rap. You know, the problem is a cultural problem, and everyone needs to understand that for millennials. It's the era of let's hire someone part-time. So they might have two or three part-time jobs as a millennial. Finally, this, this Wednesday, we have the formal award that I'm going to award to Kurt Isaacson for the most energetic presenter. Here's part from this morning where he was speaking about uh, putting out a fire in a hurry. I pull up. It's a good room fire to stretch the line. Now watch what a boss does. This guy's probably got about 22 years. He stops right here. He's stopping right here. He's masking up. His firefighters are stretching. Why is he masking up right here? What's he doing with 27 years? Is he sizing up the house? He's looking at what the windows are, where the bedrooms are. When he goes in, even though he has a thermal imager, he wants to know occupiable, survivable space. He's seeing what they're doing. That line stretch. Somebody's going around in the back of the house. Just a small little ranch. Let's see what's happening. The line's being charged. Now watch real close when he flows this line. What he does. Fire's bitten out that bedroom, kind of jumping up into the uh, eaves there, spreading that little modified kind of like gable. What is he doing? Does everybody see the nozzle? What is the nozzle? It's cracked. Why was it cracked? He's he's knee on just like Timmy Clack taught me 27 years ago, and we taught our whole job. Tim actually taught all our guys back in the, uh, probably 15 years ago. He's knee on it's cracked, so when he picks it up, what's the line already? It's already wet. Sweat the small stuff. And he was already ready. Watching. Now, he doesn't put water in the window. Where does he put water? And the eaves. That's all he did. He was making sure that auto extension, or what we call skin in the back. So when he goes in, boom, he's going to be inside and he's going to put that fire. He, if you look closely, he wouldn't shoot water through the window. What was he shoot water on? That whole combustible gable attic space. He's going to push in. Somebody's at the door. What are they already stretching? A second line. We're all about the line. That fire's out, basically. That's why the smoke started to change. That line's in the building. You can't even see it. What do you think firefighters have already done around the back of the house? What do you think is already going on at the back of the house? They already did. They forced the light towards the fire in front of the house. They weren't waiting to just pass that. They're like, the chief was in there. They're like, okay, go over to the back of the house. They forced entry. They're already searching the survival rooms. What's already happened in this video in 90 seconds? A line was stretched, bled, flowed, and we got a knockdown. Now, if anybody seen a video of a fire that was this simple but didn't go this simple? Happens all the time. They screw up the stretch. You can't get enough water. They were standing at the window for like three minutes. They stand at the window for like three minutes. And they get inside in the hallways. A little soothing here, a little dry. Or just pass it. it that's a one room fire. What's past this hallway? What's past that room? 13 feet of hallway that somebody can lay on the floor. Two bedrooms. They need a hallway. The right two bedrooms in the hallway. That's two survivable bedrooms. The only way to get them, unless you just do one room BES, which is better, is just to get a line in there. We're literally at the two-minute mark, and what's the smoke already doing in this video? Would you say that's a pretty good, quick, ranch style of for just six people? Guaranteed. 
Man, you know, after I, <laughs> after I sat in there, I was exhausted. Oh, it's startling, literally. He makes Tony Robbins look like he's half asleep. <laughs> well, now that everyone is wide awake, we want you to put your thinking helmet on. It's time again for trivia. Ba-ba-bum. And Mr. Scott has that. Here it comes. In what year did both New York City and London establish paid fire departments? I'll have the answer right after Holly tries to sell you something. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. There you go. She tried her best. She did. All right. The answer to the trivia question, both New York and London started their paid fire departments in 1865. Woof. Okay. That about wraps it up for today's live coverage of Firehouse World from San Diego. We'll be right back here tomorrow night at 6 Pacific 9 Eastern. I'm Rhonda Orr. And I'm Scott Orr. Thanks for being with us. We hope you'll be here tomorrow when we give it another shot live from San Diego. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 